Jez, welcome to the Long COVID Hope Podcast. It's, I'm so glad to have you here. Um, how are you doing? Uh, I am doing relatively well at the moment, actually. So I've just I've just taken two months out from work, essentially. So December and January with a brief, hectic, counterproductive Christmas period, <laughs> as, as it always is. Mm-hmm. But essentially with the goal of just trying to calm the nervous system down and change a bunch of patterns of behaviour and remove a bunch of stresses and do a little bit of autonomic reconditioning work as well. Um, and I, I'm definitely doing much better. My tolerance to doing things has improved. And, and the way that I can tell that is just heart rate. So um, my heart rate would just go sky high if, uh, you know, if I've been doing something for five or 10 minutes, and that seems to have really calmed down. My general where I'm at is uh, a little bit harder to ask because I've just got a cold. So, and you know, if you've got a cold, it kind of turbocharges your long COVID symptoms. So I haven't quite worked out what the baseline is now, but but generally I'm doing pretty well. Great. I'm really glad to hear that. I, I did know that you've been away um, having screen breaks and things, so that, that's really great to hear. Um, so could you just quickly introduce yourself, where mm. you are and what you do? Yeah. Uh, so I'm Jez Meddinger. I am a... Uh, and engineer by education, a filmmaker by profession. And then I caught COVID in early 2020 and turned what my YouTube channel was going to be about, which is going to be about running. Um, It became um, a descent into the rabbit hole of long COVID um, as I sort of found myself at sort of the forefront of patient-led research and knowledge around the developing condition. Um, Now, almost three years later, I've made something like 90 or 95 films on the subject and written a book, which is called The Long COVID Handbook. Absolutely. Yes. And again, I'm just so thrilled to have you here. I think um, out of everybody uh, throughout my own long haul experience, like you've been a kind of consistent presence, I think. I've watched your YouTube videos as you've gone along. And to be very honest, obviously, this podcast is about hope as, as, a, as a concept around long COVID and I feel like you personally have supplied me with lots of hope over the years so it's really fantastic to have you here and you. many congratulations on on the book. Um, yeah it's very it's exciting so yeah it got released in the UK in October just got released in the US a couple of days ago so hoping that some of the 20 million people suffering in the US can you know find it useful and help them manage their symptoms and plot their own paths to recovery so yeah it's really exciting fantastic and um i have read, i'm too, too honest with you i have not read the entire thing but i've dipped in and out and i found it to be a really enjoyable really readable book um it's been interesting because obviously have i, I so i caught covid in march 2020 myself and so i've kind of been along the journey in a similar time frame to you and um i've also done my own research and been in the, the online communities and stuff but um so i was kind of a little bit um surprised to still be learning stuff from the book and i think something that you do really nicely is is it's how you tie everything together and um like like structure the research and structure the things and it's a really readable way and I think it's, it's it's brilliant and I would highly recommend uh, for listeners to to check it out. Thank you. Thank you. And I th- also think Danny, that's Professor Danny Altman, who I wrote mm. the book with, his voice is really important in that too. And I think, you know, I'm really pleased that Penguin are okay with us writing it from two perspectives, because not all the publishers we spoke to were. Some, a lot of them wanted us to speak from a single perspective. And Danny and I were very clear that we had to speak from two perspectives. And I think the book is much stronger for that because that sort of delineates this tension between, if you like, the patients and the establishments, which has very much been there from the start because the establishment moves slowly, right? This is a brand new condition. The patients have been at the forefront of naming the condition, researching the condition, um, advocating for the condition. And, and, you know, the medical establishment has been playing catch up, but they are hugely important to all of us going forwards. So, you know, how we balance this sort of, I guess, set of demands and needs from the patients with the sort of the practical, realistic nature of doing good science is is going to be key. And I think that's where Danny's voice is so important to help people understand why when they go to see their doctor, the responses are what they are, um, mm-hmm. for better or for worse, and what it's going to take in the future to develop treatments and what the hopes are for the future and where what the landscape might look like in two, five, ten years or so. 
Absolutely, absolutely. And it's it's really interesting that the dialogue back and forth between you two, um, Danny has uh, text boxes throughout uh, the chapters kind of chiming in. And I think it's it's really a productive way of doing things. Um, and yeah, like I think I think you both have, have got really good things to say, and but uh, often, um, you know, different things to say at the same time. Obviously, there's a couple of particularly sticky issues, I think, around MCAS and things like that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So there's a few things which are you know, there are sort of functional medicine doctors and there are other doctors who are um, sort of very much up to speed on relatively new theories slash, you know, um, sort of understandings of sort of the immune system and the body. And, and mast cell activation is MCAS is not widely accepted. You know, if you go in and speak to your GP about MCAS, most of them will scratch their heads and say, Are you sure? You know, go and speak to a bunch of world-leading immunologists and they'll be like, hmm, you know, so this is still a lot of the stuff here that seems to be really uh, applicable to long COVID is still not widely understood or accepted by the medical community. And that's before you can start talking about microclotting, for example, which again, the long COVID community has jumped on because it's the first obvious sort of practical, tangible thing that we can see that's going wrong that makes sense, right? Um, but until we get, the microclot findings replicated by more researchers in more places being published in more reputable journals than has been so far, we're going to struggle to see the establishment take these findings seriously, or even consider doing things like prescribing blood thinners or anything else that might help. So this, again, like this sort of tension between the patients and the establishment is, <laughs> is really important. And I think, you know, trying to understand that balance between the two and um, and what good research looks like is one of the things that we were really keen to try and describe in the book so that so that yes. readers can understand what it's going to take before you Absolutely. go to your doctor and they'll say, yes, here you go. <laughs> here's some antihistamines and here's something to treat your hyperactivated platelets. You know, it's not all doctors are necessarily going to be on board with that just yet. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And um, before we dive into the specific content, mm. I guess, in the book and in your videos, um, I think uh, a question that probably every listener has in their mind is, how did you manage to write a book and create all these videos with long COVID? Like, I'm really curious to find out. <laughs> so, well, the answer is I was really ill in that first year, um, but I wasn't doing any other work because I'm normally freelance and I wasn't doing any of my other film production work. Um, and I, so I had, in a, to a degree, I had some time, you know, despite being ill. And, and the challenge for me was, you know, how can I be productive? And again, I think this is something that's common to a lot of us long haulers is that we came into this experience being perpetual doers. And the idea of not doing was, you know, an antithesis to, <laughs> to my self-esteem and everything else. So, so I felt like I had to be doing something and I really wanted to sort of wrestle back control away from the illness and put it back into my hands. And by sort of addressing the subject, I felt like it did give me some control back over this condition that strips it all away from you. Um, so I was heavily motivated to do it. And the answer is I just used the windows of cognitive semi-clarity that I had to do that work in. You know, and it might only there might have only been one or two days in any given week where I was up to recording a video um and those would be the days i'd record it on um and if you look back at those videos now especially from the early days i look really pretty grisly i look like i you know died about a week earlier and um but those were the days i was like at my best you know um <laughs> and it's the same thing with the research and the writing i would do those in other gaps where i could and where i was physically able to do it and you know it would take me a week to turn around a video um whereas if i'd been well i could have written, produced, shot, edited, turned the whole thing around in a day, you know. So ultimately stuff was taking me a lot longer, but I was just about able to sort of, you know, do the research, dig this stuff out, produce the content and put it out. Although to be honest, it the last two years, two and a half years of making the films, doing the research, writing the book, it has come at a cost to my health, I think. And my recovery, I hadn't really prioritized and that's one of the reasons for recently taking a couple of months out is to actually say, you know what, now it maybe is time to actually put recovery in position number one, rather than just trying to bluster my way through without really making it the number one priority. Absolutely. Yeah, I was wondering about that. 
like how much because you've done you know amazing things for the community and everyone is very grateful but obviously at what cost and Double i guess cost. maybe it's time <laughs> that you follow your own advice about pacing and resting and all the everything else yeah um, actually, that's a good segue into <laughs> into the, the book's uh, content, because um, I think something that's that's great about it, there's many great things about it, but um, the way that you talk about managing symptoms and the way you talk about treatment and um, you underpin it with your own uh, patient-led research, it's really interesting. And um, yeah, I... I think as well, because I'm, I'm recovered from long COVID and um, I found it very interesting how uh, your surveys um, that uh, surveyed people that had recovered and you asked them why, it was, it, like, it, 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 like the, the results of that chimes very strongly with kind of the, the general kind of consensus around you know, MSCFS, long COVID and the things you need to do. Um, do you want to give a little discussion, a little like summary of, of you know, your findings. Um, I mean, well, there's a lot in there, right? You've just covered yeah. a lot of grounds, whether we're talking about recovery or managing treatments or, you know, managing symptoms or treatments and the rest of it. Before I do that, I would just like to ask you, how long was it before you recovered? And was there anything that you particularly attribute your recovery to? Yes. So I, I do jive with your findings that I recovered at around the two year point and I've, my turning point was about 18 months onwards. And um, there, there are some things that I contribute to recovery, definitely things that helped kind of move the needle. Um, I would say that the, probably the, the biggest thing was getting on top of pacing, pacing and um, symptoms management more effectively. Um, it wasn't until I I really kind of took a step back and realized that I was basically doing too much crashing, doing too much crashing, <laughs> too much crashing, like most days. And like a lot of my symptoms were because I was just pushing too hard. And um, when I when I decided, okay, I'm going to completely embrace radical rest and have rest breaks throughout my days. And that's when um, the post-exertional malaise episode started to you know be fewer and fewer and more time in between um so i think um that was probably where the true start like turning point came but there's a few things that i, I do attribute to it but it's, it's, obviously it's hard to say exactly isn't it did you, did you ever get reinfected i did yes at what point i've been reinfected three times um, i and have how... a two-year-old so okay so impossible not to right um <laughs> and what impact did that have on at what points did, that, did those ha have you been reinfected since you recovered and did you get reinfected before you recovered if that makes sense and did that send you back okay so yes yes and yes <laughs> i so um uh let's remember so i, I was reinfected three times i've had COVID four times unfortunately um and i, I so i found personally that each reinfection was less intense my first acute phase i had a pneumonia and it was very a very intense acute phase but with every reinfection it was um a lot less symptomatic and for me i don't know i, I think it's, it set me back a little bit but it wasn't like a huge setback if that makes sense like i think my i i kind of recovered to the baseline of where i was before the reinfection within like a month to two months, something like that. I and guess it once, depends on your perspective. Like, <laughs> yeah, it. and once and once you'd recovered from long COVID and you got infected after that, did you recover like a normal person, or did any of the long COVID symptoms come back? Yes. So I did have a couple of symptoms come back that I remembered from long COVID, um, but fortunately, like I said, like I think within three weeks, four weeks period, it had faded back away. But I mean, it, it is psychologically that is really really tough like even though I am recovered and I'm very fortunate and grateful for that like obviously <laughs> this experience is hard to forget and um you never know what the next experience is going to be like do you know what I mean so yeah. absolutely so so okay so to answer your question um I think you've hit a big nail on the head there which is the first thing that 
Like, it t- okay, so let's say someone's listening to this who's still suffering with long COVID. If I was to p- give, create some sort of bullet point plan to get better, uh, admittedly from the perspective of somebody who isn't 100% better yet, but <laughs> I've watched enough people who have got 100% better. <laughs> I need to, you know, listen to myself as well here to some degree. But the first thing you have to do is to work out how many of your symptoms are how many of your symptoms are because you are in a constant state of crash, which is because you're perpetually trying to do too much? Many long haulers think this is long COVID. But actually, if you did nothing for two or three days, how many of those symptoms would go away? I.e., like the difference between your baseline, your true long COVID baseline and your PEM triggered symptoms. And some people spend their entire time in that level of PEM. And you have to try and establish what for you are the particular triggers that mean that you do too much and to try and eliminate those or pace those out or mitigate them somehow so once you've removed that constant state of crash then okay you've got your baseline and you but this way whilst you're in a constant state of crash you're not going to get better <laughs> so that's the first thing that you've got to get out of the way yes and you could get worse if, if yeah oh yeah absolutely again. it could get more severe you know that's one thing that the mecfs um community have taught us which is listen to that stuff and don't overdo it because it can get permanently worse potentially um so then you need to look at managing your symptoms and i probably group symptoms into sort of four categories the first of those are mcas related symptoms so if you've ever had asthma eczema um, or hay fever before some of your symptoms are possibly due to this um it's essentially the body's immune system going a little bit haywire. Common manifestations here would be things like uh, difficulty breathing, tight chest, GI disturbance, headaches, rashes, um, things like that. Um, if that if that sounds a bit like you, um, consider antihistamines. So H1, H2 antihistamines. You can get H1s from the chemist. Um, to get H2s, you'll need a, a nice doctor. Um, but more and more doctors are now on board with prescribing antihistamines for long COVID. Yes. Um, second group of symptoms, um, uh, dysautonomic. Now, this is probably the vast majority of long haulers have some degree of dysautonomia. It may not be full-blown POTS, which is postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, which basically means that your heart rate jumps by 30 beats per minute upon standing. That means that anything that you do standing is... Uh, a bad idea <laughs> and makes you feel terrible. So if you've got POTS, then that's a whole separate issue about how you deal with that. If you've got POTS, do go and see a doctor. There are some medications they can give you that help with that. For the rest of us who don't have POTS but are dysautonomic, what this essentially means is that the autonomic system that governs are a bunch of our basic functions that we don't think about, like heart rate, blood pressure, breathing rates, um, digestion, you know, that's... Um, that side of things is governed by the autonomic system, and essentially it's gone out of whack. Um, it has two fundamental states, the autonomic system, the parasympathetic state, which is known as rest, digest, heal, or breed and feed, potentially as well. Um, and then the sympathetic, which is commonly known as fight or flight, or potentially freeze as well. And what seems to have happened is that the virus has knocked our autonomic system over so that we spend too much time sympathetically activated and we're stuck in fight or flight. This has a huge number of consequences um, largely because the body isn't resting, digesting, or healing. Um, we're probably also not getting enough deep sleep or restorative sleep um, as a result of this. Um, symptoms of dysautonomia include dizziness, nausea, headaches, uh, racing heart, palpitations, tight chest, um, and again, also GI problems too as well, potentially. Um, most of us are to some degree dysautonomic, so one of the most important things to dealing with dysautonomia is to calm the nervous system down. And this is where pacing comes in. This is why it's so important to break up your activities because the longer you do something for, the more likely the body is to get stuck and clunk into that fight or flight sympathetically activated state. But by breaking things up, doing them slower, doing them differently, you don't agitate the nervous system as much, even if it's just hoovering the house or having a shower, right? These are the sorts of things you've got to be careful with. Um, and then there are some active things that you can do beyond just breaking things up and taking rest breaks. So things like meditation, breath work, and gentle yoga. Um, very, very important. And I would particularly point people, although they're probably, you know, uh, preaching to the converted here. Um, but gentle yoga, I think, particularly reclining yoga and other stuff like that, very, very effective at calming down the nervous system and also introducing a degree of autonomic reconditioning 
which basically means that the body learns that certain movements you don't need to freak out about um, yes. fundamentally. Um, so that's dysautonomia in a nutshell. Um, this is probably the biggest, most common group of symptoms for most long haulers and the most important place to start, I think. Um, so the third, moving on to the third category of symptoms, these are the potentially the, the metabolic ones. So this is uh, the idea that essentially we're not producing enough physical energy um, on a cellular level. So this is the failure of the mitochondria to generate enough ATP. All sorts of reasons why this might be. Um, it does seem, according to some theories and some evidence from my patient-led research, that there are some supplements you can take that will help with this. Um, lots of people respond very well to nicotinic acid, the flushing variety, which helps the body generate uh, NAD+, which is, one of, which is a coenzyme, which is a critical precursor of making ATP, which is the body's fundamental unit of energy. Not everybody responds well to nicotine acid, but some people respond incredibly well to it. You can just get it online for 13 quid for a bottle of 100 pills. Please do try it. Um, but be aware it has a flushing reaction, so don't take huge doses to start off with. <laughs> um, and talk to your doctor if you have any concerns. I'm not a medical professional, disclaimer, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so that metabolic side of stuff is responsible for that sort of crushing fatigue that we experience, especially that comes when we've done a little bit too much as part of the pen, we've often got this crushing fatigue. And what's happening there is that the body, well, my theory is that the body is shutting down all of your sort of available sort of choice related functions, because it's simply run out of enough energy to power your body's basic processes. Like, you know, do you have enough ATP to run your lungs, your kidneys, your heart, your guts, your brain, right? Um, in normal life, it's very difficult to deplete the stores of energy, no matter what you do, whether it's running marathons or doing all-nighters, to deplete the stores of energy that run those basic processes. But with a systemic condition like long COVID, it's very easy when your body cannot physically produce enough energy to use more than you've got and more than you're able to replenish, which is one of the reasons for the crash that comes after you do too much. Another reason for the crash when you do too much is... Um, is the body also it's a nervous system thing so there's a third state in that dis, in that autonomic system um according to a theory by um a scientist called dr stephen porges um and that is essentially the immobilization state that comes after you go if you sort of imagine it as a sort of a traffic light you've got um green is parasympathetic orange is sympathetic the fight or flight and then if you stay there for too long what happens is the body tips over and crashes and goes into immobilization which is red and it basically freezes you whilst the nervous system basically comes back it's yes. you can get to that place of immobilization without having long covid it's what's called burnout <laughs> fundamentally um and a lot of people who spend too long in that hyperactivated state whilst being notionally healthy end up there but it's very very easy to get there like that when you've got long covid so that's another reason for the crashes <laughs> sorry i'm speaking very fast but there's so much to talk about here um, and the fourth sort of group of sort of things that might be causing symptoms are and this is something that's a question mark for me is to what degree is organ function impaired so this is you know notionally sort of damage caused by the virus or from the acute infection it's hard to establish how much of this is directly responsible for symptoms but we have had studies which have shown that you know varying percentages of long haulers do have ascertainable impairment in organ function, whether it's kidneys, lungs, heart, the rest of it. This is sort of the you know, myocarditis and this sort of thing. Um, some of that may be responsible for your symptoms. Um, hard to, unless you've been to the cover scan project and had your whole body MRI'd, difficult to know what, um, and also difficult to treat. I think fundamentally you have to sort of look at that from a holistic level, which is how do I let the body heal itself? The body does want to heal itself. Yes. In long COVID, we appear to have a number of interconnected vicious cycles running at the same time. And the challenge is how do we throw enough, you know, twigs in the spokes of each of these cycles which are running to stop enough of them that actually the body goes, oh, I've got a bit of breathing room here. I can actually find my way back to homeostasis, which is what it would like to do. You yes. know, and, you know, 
difference this is the one of the reasons why everybody's long covid is different is that it seems like all of us have a different mix of those four categories of causes if you like mm-hmm. um and each of them play a different role in each of us on a particular organ system so what works for one person may not work for another um we have to find our own particular jigsaw puzzle and work that out through trial and error and you know the rest of it and patience and bloody mindedness <laughs> and um uh, yeah to, before we can get to a place where we can work out what's driving most of our symptoms whether it's something we can control or something we can't and when i say control i mean the big one there is nervous system you know what we do has a large impact on how our nervous system responds yes um and that's the first place to start i think and i think before you can start thinking about recovery well Obviously, we're all thinking about recovery, but the first place to start for recovery is for me to calm a nervous system down. And then you can start to, well, manage the symptoms, calm a nervous system down, and then you can start to look at things like autonomic reconditioning, um, which is what I believe yoga is very good for. And Mm -hmm. we will all have our own way of sort of addressing that. For me, I got a bit of heat last year because I went on holiday to the Alps, which I would describe as active convalescence. Um, or semi-active convalescence, but people are like, oh my God, you went on a skiing holiday, you can't really be ill. The reality was actually quite different in terms of what I was doing on that holiday and yes. what that skiing consisted of and the compromises I had to make everywhere else to be able to do five minutes of sliding down a mountain, you know, um, and that's breaking up every 20 seconds, doing breath work, not talking to people on lifts because I'm just sitting there doing breath work to try and bring the nervous system back down again. Um, and then, you know, spend an hour on the mountain of which five minutes is actually moving or doing something. And then I go straight back home and I rest, do breath work and meditation and sleep for the entire rest of the 23 hours <laughs> of that sort of day. You know, I'm not doing any work. I'm not doing any phone calls or Zoom calls. You know, my brother's doing some cooking. I'm not even having to do that. I'm not doing any washing or faffing, you know. So that's what enabled me to focus on just that little bit of what I, you know, see as autonomic reconditioning. And that won't work for everybody. You know, we all have different levels of tolerance. We all have different things that we might want to do. But something like swimming might work for you. Maybe you've got relatively easy access to a swimming pool. Maybe swimming something that you enjoy that you can connect with, that brings you joy, that gets you into a better place psychologically as well as physically. And can you do a little bit of that without it inducing PEM? If so, fantastic. You know, so again, this is this is one of the key things. And, you know, exercise is bad for long COVID as a general rule, because almost all of us have some degree of post-exertional malaise. But if you can establish what your limit is of activity, can you remove other things that normally fill that up and replace that with healthy activity if so great but you probably can't do all of the normal faffing about your daily routine and busy this busy that and then stick exercise on top that's going to be a flat no-no but you might be able to take a week out go on holiday cut all the rest of the shit out and then do a little bit of activity so that's the kind of thing i'm talking about here um, yes, I do remember that. I remember that video well. And actually, yeah. I went. I went back before uh, this interview, and I went and was like, I, I, I tend to uh, always comment <laughs> on your videos, and I went to see what my comment was, and I said, "Glorious!" I said it was really <laughs> inspirational to me <laughs> to see to see you know you do that. And to be honest, like I guess back to the idea of hope, you know, it's 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 really important to have these wins and to have um, these moments of of joy and like doing what you love, you know, it, but, but obviously in a way that isn't going to set you back too much. Um, but I, I think, yeah, I, 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 I think um, I know the controversy around that, <laughs> but I, I personally, I, I thought, I thought it was quite inspiring. Thank you. Um, well, I'm very glad to hear that. And I, and I think the majority of people who saw that were inspired by it. It's just, it made some people quite upset, you know, whereas yeah. most of my other content isn't too, um, challenging from that perspective and i'm quite careful to not make any wild claims but this i think just again i maybe didn't do the best job in the video of actually describing what i had to do to enable that i maybe could have framed it better in hindsight um so yeah at the end of the day you're never going to please everybody and i've had my own controversy with offering yoga for long covid and having people and rightly so from the mecfs community coming and telling me no no you shouldn't be exercising you're going to make people permanently worse 
but there's ways and ways of doing things and you know there's a way to um to yoga but by the way like the actual concept of yoga only one small component of it is the asanas the poses my yoga practice my yoga class is really more focused on meditation and breath work with the occasional pose <laughs> than anything else and, and and you know it works and it's helping people in some way but obviously i, I can't claim that it's going to make everyone 100 better but like you said about the um autonomic nervous system putting yourself into parasympathetic response it's, it's just something that can take you there can help i i think it's an absolutely fundamental precursor to getting better whether that's getting five percent better or a hundred percent better is calming that nervous system down i really do think it's almost the most important place to start and what we don't realize because we've got used to it in the rest of our daily life is how is the state of activation that we might be in, what we might have been in for our entire lives and not realize that we've always been running in this state of hyperactivation that we've yes. been able to tolerate before and now we can't. How much of your environment, how much of your interactions, how much of the people around you, how much of the work that you might still do, how much of all of these things are leading you into this activated state. So I wanted, when I sort of took some time out recently, I deleted Facebook, I deleted Instagram, I deleted Twitter, and I've not been on them for two months because actually those platforms, whilst they are a community, they are still a, there's still a lot of outrage there. There's still a lot of <laughs> all of this kind of stuff, which as soon as you engage with it, as soon as you read it, it just, apart from just what that does to your mental state and the state of mind it puts you into and what then you start thinking, but also that even that mental habit of my phone's in my pocket and I've not looked at it in two minutes and I have this impulse to pull it out and press one of those social media buttons and doom scroll because there'll be some new stimulation on there. We've all become stimulation addicts and I really wanted to try and break that mental pattern as well. So even yes. to the degree when I went away to the Alps, I would turn my phone off and just stick it on the table and say, right, it's nine o'clock. I've checked my messages. I'm not turning that phone on again until five o'clock. And at first you're like, oh God, it's like, where's my comfort blanket? You know, being switched off from your phone. It's like, oh my God, you know, let alone having all the diverse instincts. I must find this out. I must have that stimulation. No. And it, it's hard, right? It's hard to cut that stuff out. But yes. I think I've genuinely made a difference actually by spending two months without all that. And, and again, changing those thought patterns, changing those behavior patterns, it's all part of what feeds our nervous system. Yes, I completely, I can believe it that you felt better for doing that and and good for you, quite frankly. And mm. it's something I do encourage my private yoga, uh, my private yoga students to, 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 to try. And actually, like part of what, what, what we do is we, um, I ask them to write down a list of what they do during their day. And some people spend four or five hours on Twitter or whatever their platform of choice and and like just think of the amount of spoons being used up in, just, yeah. just doing that and is that really what you want to be using your spoons on and whilst you know I, I understand that long COVID and related conditions are very isolating and and like this that human connection that but like I just wonder if, if there are better ways. And, and... I, 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 I would say so. I would say joining an online yoga class and chatting to people afterwards or whatever is a far better use of those spoons and connection, finding that connection than an environment which feeds on outrage for clicks, you know. And yes, there is a community there, but most of that community is on there complaining and yes. just being around. And it's not necessarily that mutually supportive on the whole. You know, if you're really honest about what you get when you scroll your timeline, especially if you're in the largely long COVID feed, same on the Facebook support groups, you know, yeah. Instagram is a different kind of stimulation, I think, it's sort of a more of a sort of, but again, you get caught in that doom scrolling thing. I've now started just getting reels suggested to me on Instagram or I was getting this before. And then I just find I've been just looking at bullshit for five minutes and you don't even realize, right? Yeah, just because each thing is like a seven second hit. And you're like, oh, next one, seven second hit. What's going to happen next? It's a fucking hell, yeah. right? Yeah. It's This stuff is preying upon our evolution that, you know, was designed to need stimulation, but not like this you know absolutely so. and I can feel myself like you know I, obviously I, I feel in remission or whatever from symptoms and mm. um you know I, I go on Twitter to post about my yoga class or whatever and um I, I find myself getting feeling worked up and like you start mm. to feel like anxious and, and tense and stressed by reading on this and 
you only you only realize you're feeling like that once you've actually calmed yourself down Mm -hmm. if you're perpetually in this state of anxiety um which also is not necessarily your fault. I also just want to point this out as well. So just to deal with one of the big, I'm sure, again, I'm preaching the converted here. Anxiety, depression, mental health are in no means ever a cause of long COVID symptoms. Long COVID as a condition will drive anxiety, depression, mental health issues via two mechanisms. The first is biologically, physiologically. It messes up your serotonin levels. It messes up your chemistry. Um, you're not sleeping well, all of this sort of stuff. And it sends you into your nervous system into fight or flight, which is inherently anxious, <laughs> right? So your body has just got stuck in this anxious, anxious state physiologically. And the second part of it is the impact on your life. When everything that you thought you knew about your body and your life and your capabilities and your faculties has been turned upside down, it's going to have an impact of a spectacular level potentially on anxiety levels and mental health levels because if you can't work if you can't have conversations if you can't do this of course these things are secondary but you know so it's completely natural for you to be in this sort of anxious state but sometimes i didn't realize just how much of the time i was in that state until i actually even for a 10 minute period calm myself down out of it and then i was like oh i feel different this is a place i've not been in a really long time and then i notice if i get back on twitter oh i can feel myself getting riled up again you know and that's and that's where we don't realize if we're in that all the time how difficult it is to break that pattern because our body is trying to get stuck in it right we've got to really run hard into that headwind to try and get out of it Yes. And by the way, I recommend meditation, kind of meditation to, to, as, as a method. Out. I mean, I, I know that you know meditation isn't for everybody and I'm sure people listening might think, oh, not for me. Oh, I'm not sure I can do that. But, you know, I would recommend so, just give me the world. So guided meditation, 100% recommend. And what I would also say about it is that it's not something that you succeed or fail at. Even if mm. you just lie down or sit down and put it on and then just don't doom scroll for that 10 minutes even if you don't do what the guided meditation tells you to do yeah that's a success right yes yes. taking a rest break removing you're removing stimuli during that Mm -hmm. point during that period even if your brain even if you haven't found a place of brain calm which is what meditation is trying to get you to do and it's also impossible i ought to just point out (laughs) but just removing stimuli is a huge part of this um and what even if there's 30 seconds in there that you manage to think about your breathing great job well done right and yes. and i guarantee you that there is a benefit in terms of doing that than just trying to sit down for 10 minutes because will you actually sit down for 10 minutes or will you just get up and do something or just look at your phone or just do something else so that's where i find guided meditation to be really good even if you can't do it it just keeps you on the rails of rest <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah. and and it, get, it gets easier with time as well i would say it does. if anyone like first tries it and it's like seems awful impossible whatever you want to say like you know your brain is capable of change and you know neuroplasticity is a thing and and the, the more you do of something the more you do of anything by the way the more you do of a, of a certain thing that the, the brain will literally evolve and and things will get easier and and it gets more it gets more enjoyable <laughs> but anyway 100%. i'll get off my soapbox about that yeah <laughs> um I, maybe we should just uh segue a little bit towards discussion of your youtube videos a bit of mm. which there are many like you said and wonderful mm. things um i think in terms of you know this particular podcast i'm kind of curious about talking about your uh, longitudinal studies surveys mm. your patient led um surveys um that you you conduct at every six months i suppose 6 12 yeah. 18 yeah. 24 and um the kind of findings you have with that um i guess I'm, I'm i guess what i want to highlight is how many people have increasingly felt better through the through that, that there's actually evidence that people can gradually feel better and I feel like there's also evidence from your surveys that the survey responses have, have reduced over time from the first waivers that show that obviously more and more people get better. And like for me personally, I don't have the data, <laughs> but I have my lived experience of speaking to people online and, and seeing people, you know, more and more people that I've become friends with online drop off because they're better and they don't need to be there anymore. Um, so I don't know if you want to say so, that. But... Yeah, so it, I mean, it started off with me at six months thinking I need to do a snapshot of mm. where we're at at six months. Because six months at the time, 
seemed like a really long time to be unwell for. Um, and now we're sort of staring down the barrel oh, yeah. of three years. I remember, I remember when we were talking about it in days. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm on day 124. And I actually kept a diary of stuff until I got to day 200. And I was like, fuck this. Um, so, yeah. yeah. So, so yeah, I did it at six months and I did it at 12. And I ended up, and I've done it every sort of uh, six months since. And I've started replicating the questions between those studies so I can compare the responses at any given point. Now, what I don't have, I mean, there's all sorts of ways, if you're going to be, you know, technically relying on this data, if I was going to try and publish it, there's all sorts of holes in it, because the samples don't exactly match. It's not exactly the same people each time. It's sure. a snapshot of the community at any given time. And on the whole, about 50 or 60% of the people who fill in any given survey had done the previous one, but half of them hadn't. Um, so I can't say, well, these are exactly the same people, and they're exactly doing better. But the, the community as a snapshot over time does seem to be doing better. Now, there's a few different ways of interpreting the data. Um, and one of the ones which I think is actually mo most compelling is how the engagement has dropped off. And as you mentioned this, you know, my studies at the start were finding 2,000 plus people. Now I'm sort of down to 1,000. That's been a relatively... Um, progressive it's not like it's just a one-off you know I've got six of these surveys and I can see them progressively dropping and it feel and this also represents the sort of the, the anecdotal experience of what we sort of see in the communities is that those first waivers are becoming less and less engaged now there could be a few reasons for this um, it could be that they're simply fed up of these communities um, it could be that they're not you know they don't want to be there anymore but they're still just as ill um, it could be as, <laughs> I don't think this is the case, as some internet trolls have been suggesting, they're all dead. No, <laughs> long haulers no, no, don't no. tend to die. We're not joking about death, but no, they're not, they're not no, dead. They, no, no, that doesn't <laughs> seem to happen. Um, so what it would seem to suggest to me, which reflects my experience of the long haulers I know from the first wave, is that people are generally tending to get better. Now, not everybody is getting to 100%. A lot of people are going from plateau one to plateau two or, you know, plateau two to plateau three. But there does seem to be this general trend of improvement. Where I, where I think there are, well, I will counter this by saying there's still a lot of people who are not well from the first wave. And if you speak to... Uh, and I've spoken to a bunch of doctors who've been treating long haulers from various different waves. And what they have generally said is there was something about the virus in that first wave that seems to be particularly nasty from a long-term symptoms point of view. That is to say, the first wave long haulers have generally been sicker with long COVID than the ones that came after that. Um, and particularly Omicron, which doesn't seem to be quite as nasty for long COVID. It can give you long COVID. And I, what I also want to say as well is that just because you might have had COVID three times and been fine before, people are then randomly developing long COVID after Omicron than before. You know, so that can happen. Um, but generally speaking, that first wave was particularly nasty and people are tending to get better. Now, if you spin through all all of the comments about what people thought got them better, it's it, it's a qualitative analysis. So I've just got lots of text essentially but the general things that come out of that if you sort of collate the themes are it is you know pacing resting <laughs> you know it is the basics and and this is one of the reasons why i come back to calming your nervous system down because you know ultimately that's what pacing and resting do um but you can more directly go after that goal when you phrase it as calming the nervous system down because it then becomes something active that you can do and i think all of us you know, short of having a magic bullet pill from a doctor that makes us better tomorrow, is we want to have something that we can physically do, <laughs> right? What can I do that, that's going to help? And actually, if you go, okay, you know what? My job is to calm the nervous system down. Then suddenly you don't see pacing and resting as indolence or as time wasting or as a or as a failure to be doing things. Actually, no, not doing is very specific doing particularly if you're actively trying. I don't know if that made sense, but it's a that's quite a helpful framing, I think, for trying to um, trying to get your head around that and actually thinking, no, this is a productive use of time. This is not me being unproductive. This is me being incredibly productive. Um, yeah. Do you want to tell me what videos resonated for you? Yeah, I mean, in terms of your videos, obviously... Like, like we were just talking about the surveys, I think in particular, 
were really good to see. I think at, certainly when you first started it, it was at a time that, you know, the the long COVID research wasn't really mobilized yet. Obviously now the research landscape is is a lot more complex, but at the time there wasn't much there. And um, so I feel like those were really good to see. And yeah, I mean, thinking that obviously you've interviewed lots of different really great people, great researchers. Um, I think the, the, the nice and stack one kind of mm. is memorable. Maybe it's memorable because obviously most people tried that. It was, it was yeah, it was one of the, it's funny how responsible I feel for putting that out there, right? Um, mm. Because it, not many other places were talking about that. And I sort of flagged this up and, you know, I, I did the interviews with sort of the people who developed the theory and then got the data on whether people felt it had helped. And it seems to back it up. Um, and it does make logical sense, you know. Um, but yeah, I do feel somewhat responsible for that. But at least it's something that you can go and buy in the chemist. And I'm not telling people to like, you know, drink bleach or yeah. <laughs> sniff glue or or something insane like that. <laughs> I, yeah, I know, I know exactly what you mean. And and yes, like, I think I was trying that and, you know, other long holes are trying at a time when we're trying loads of supplements too. We were just kind of like <laughs> throwing everything we could possibly think of at it, out of sheer desperation. And so it's a little hard to say like how much it did move the needle or whatever. And yeah, I mean, you, you, you have provided you know, this service for people, for so many people and for so long. I saw one of your videos has got a 1 million views. <laughs> That's, so that was the that was the one about um, the antibodies. Um, why is everybody testing negative? Um, and the funny thing about that, the reason why I think that got so many views is because it appeared to grab an audience who uh, were generic pandemic interested um, as well as just long haulers. So the video was basically looking at why are long haulers seemingly testing negative for antibodies when other groups aren't? Um, is it, you know, I mean, and the gaslighting sort of lobbies were trying to say, well, it's because you never had COVID and now you don't have long COVID, you've got something else, which was nonsense. The reality, of course, is that there's something very different about the way that long haulers are responding immunologically to the virus. Um, and my data seemed to show that. And then, hey, presto, 18 months, two years later, we get uh, published papers showing exactly the same thing. So that was actually something I feel quite pleased about, uh, that I was actually ahead of the curve on that. Um, and hopefully gave a lot of people who were testing negative for antibodies the reassurement that A, they weren't alone, and B, those results were, you know, probably just not working, and here's why, you know. Um, so yeah, that got a lot of traction at the time. But again, I don't think those were a million views from long haulers. I think that was just a lot of, you know, random, random YouTubers. Yes, fair enough. Mm. Um, speaking actually about research for a moment, mm. obviously we could spend a whole hour mm. just talking about that. <laughs> is is there any um, re research that's currently ongoing that you're particularly interested in that you think might really move the needle? For sure, uh, for sure. So um, I would say I really want to see the microclots research replicated elsewhere. Now, early suggestions, this is happening in a few different labs in America as well, um, early suggestions are that um, it is being replicated elsewhere. Um, the, um, the, uh, there was a, sorry, excuse me, there was a crowdfunding campaign to raise $160,000 to get um, Dr. Professor Pretorius's team uh, flow cytometry units, which basically helps um, visually image um, these blood clots in a different way. Um, that's now come through, and I'm really interested to see what the results of that are going to be. Again, this is something where if we start to get publications showing that this genuinely is an issue um, from multiple places in multiple journals, then I think it's going to start to be taken much more seriously. And off the back of that, then we're going to start to get specific treatment trials, which are actually you know, designed to deal with that. Um, but that's obviously going to take time. Um, other research, which I'm excited to see the results of. So the Recover Initiative, which is in the US, um, which is the big, in theory, $1 billion program over there. They're, do they're looking at Paxlovid to see if that has mm -hmm. any impact on yes. long COVID, which again would help answer this question of persistent virus. It's not going to definitively answer it, but it might help answer the question of whether there's persistent virus in long COVID. 
my yeah, hot, I'm my, seeing that too. <laughs> yeah, my personal hot take on it is that if there is persistent virus, I think probably everyone's got it in the same mm. way that EBV hangs around, HSV hangs around, you know, cyclone megavirus hangs around. And I suspect that it would be the sort of thing where once you've had COVID, it's hanging around somewhere. And the only difference with long haulers is that our immune systems are are blowing up in response to it whereas everybody else it's latent dormant and their immune systems aren't blowing up as a response to it that would be my uh if i had to sort of throw a dart in the dark at the tail of a donkey <laughs> that's where i'd be throwing it um what else so there's a couple of studies in the uk uh one of them's looking at um antihistamines on a large scale so that would be interesting to see if those can definitively show efficacy because if that's the case then that ought to become much easier to get them from your doctor they're also looking at a um at a blood thinner as well um which is interesting um now there is suggestion that one blood thinner by itself might not do enough for it to help and if it comes out negative then that might just kill other studies dead rather than actually digging a little bit further so that's a little bit of a seesaw moment depending on which way that goes um so yeah, there's a few things I'm particularly interested in seeing at the moment. And there's a lot of research going on that, um, I mean, I'm sort of, I've taken two months out, so I'm actually a little bit behind the curve because <laughs> I've not been all over Twitter trawling to see what the latest stuff is. So I'm also slightly out of date on this. Although having said that, given the glacial pace of research, maybe I'm still just as up to date as I ever was. Um, yeah. It's hard, to be honest, it's hard to keep up with all the different things because obviously this area, you know, many, many scientists are throwing themselves at it which is you know good for us good good for people listening um and i, I also maybe i'm eternal optimist but i'm also optimistic and hopeful that through some of this research currently happening we'll begin to unlock the true you know causes and the, and the true ways of recovering from mecfs and all the other myriad different chronic conditions that have been underserved for a very long time I, I i would very much hope at which we you know we crack long covid then we crack mecfs at the same time um yeah. i i would i would really hope that to be the case absolutely absolutely i'm aware we're running out of time mm. <laughs> i'm just wondering if i would just quickly to pivot then towards mm. your own personal story mm. so you've got a very short amount of time yeah. um but but in, in in the in this podcast usually i ask um about um, your like long COVID experience and and if there's anything that you've done that seems to have uh, kind of helped to recover or seeming to, to so so on. yeah so the, the biggest things that I have done that have helped me um, the biggest kind of step change I made was actually last year after I went out to the Alps um, and it was unfortunate that I caught Omicron on the way home um, oh. because that really did. I thought I'd, you know, the interesting thing is I sort of replicated the story for so many long haulers. I thought I'd got through that initial Omicron infection okay when I got home. And I actually had to fly to the States two weeks later and do a presentation over there. That all went fine. I tolerated that travel okay. Um, I got home. And then about five weeks after that infection, I went and did a motorbike track day, which again, sounds like an insane thing to do with long COVID. But because there's bursts of activity, you're only on track for 10 12 minutes at a time and then the rest of the hour after that you can rest it's actually weirdly as long as i was having a good day and i was cognitively sharp it was something that i could do and it gave me pleasure it gave me a sense of flow i mean weird to say it but i did get a sense of yogic flow on the motorbike it really is that same sort of mm -hmm. um, man and machine in harmony and sort of all of it you know right so but unfortunately, I think it wasn't so much the nervous system side of it as just the sheer energy involved in going to do that. Um, that crashed me pretty hard afterwards, the following sort of two or three days. And then I just slipped all the way back to where I was um, at the start of, you know, COVID number one or long COVID number one. So I've, the last year I've been climbing myself back out from that. And, I've, and it's also that second infection has also ramped up the dysautonomia. Mm. Um, where I got to the point where I could cycle slowly 800 yards into the shop and be okay. And then after that, suddenly heart rate was going wild and it was just palpitations and busyness. And I was like, bloody hell. So a year on from that, I would say I've just made another step change, which again is having taken this two months out and really prioritized rest. 
um, changed a bunch of behaviors, focused on calming down the nervous system and done a bit of autonomic reconditioning. And once I've got over this cold, I'm hoping I can establish um, where I'm actually at. You know, but one of the differences is, is that I've done a couple of um, long Zoom calls the last couple of days, and I've not had the the fog that would descend on me about 40 minutes in. And that's something that I've always had in my last year as I get about 40 minutes in and then I can't tolerate the conversation anymore. I'm gone. Um, and I seem to be able to do that as well as potter about without the heart rate going mad. So fingers crossed, this is sustained. Um, yes. But let's see. I mean, the goal for me is the point at which I can jog to the park and back, which is 10 minutes. That's kind of my goal. And that's I'm not, that's not going to constitute 100% recovered, but that'll be... The point at which I can do that, I'm going to feel like I can live with a decent quality of life because actually my quality of life has been pretty poor on average the last two or three years, as it has for everyone with long COVID. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And that's it's really the nature of this condition and the torment of it is, is the way that it's so... Um relapse remitting and yeah but I, it's, yeah, yeah. I, I feel like you know from the sounds of things okay the omicron's at your back and, and these things but the trajectory is still kind of upwards. i think so i think so and it's taken and i've got to this place now quicker than it took me i mean it took me a year and three quarters to get to after the first one to get to a decent place where i'm considering trying a little run <laughs> yeah. um whereas now i've got there a year after getting omicron so it's, it's sped up a little bit the trick is just managing trying not to get infected again yes no, certainly yeah. um well if it makes you because you you a bit of hope i did the couch to 5k program last year that's awesome and did it um that's awesome i mean Major caveat that obviously I only began that when I felt like I, you know, was basically recovered. But um, but I but I did manage to do that. I did the non to run, which is like a, a slightly less intense version, which I would recommend over couch to five k, the normal one. But um, yeah, to think that I had like like most people, I had insane exercise intolerance. Cardio was just not possible. So, so that you know. I just feel like if, if, if I if I can go through what I've been through and then manage to get back into running, then I think there's that's there's, there's hope for everyone. And I, and I know lots of people who have. I know people have gone back to ultra marathoning. You know, I mean, <laughs> yeah. maybe they shouldn't have done, but you know, it can be done. You know, I'm yeah. not I, I, at the same time as all of this. I've kind of come to a piece with not. I'm not trying to go back to where who I was before this experience anymore. And that's somewhere I got to after about a year where I realized I had to go forwards and not back. And rather than trying to get back to where I was, I just have to accept the new future and that the fact that that new future can also be a happy place and an active place, but it may be happy and active in different ways than it was before. And that's okay. And, yeah. um, and actually getting to a place where you are okay with that, that takes time because you have to grieve a lot of stuff. You have to grieve the life you had, the person you were. And, um, that's a big part of, I, mean, I haven't spoken about grieving during this podcast, but in terms of getting better, I feel that another really important part of it is grieving and healthy grieving where you come to a place of acceptance. Because again, whilst you're, you know, whilst you're in frustration, denial, anger, bitterness, bargaining stages of grief, it's not very good for your nervous system either. So, <laughs> you know, whatever you can do to process that stuff is also really important i would say so that you can look forwards with hope and with joy and optimism because i think all of that's really important yes absolutely and it kind of reminds me maybe we'll tie up here it reminds me of um a part of your book towards the end talking about like the transformational effect that COVID has had on many people and i feel I, like for me personally i feel like i'm forever changed i can't go back to you know, toxic ableists of, of, of pre-COVID years, like trying to type A, trying to do everything, go, go, go. Like, no, like it's completely transformed my life. And and now like I, I, I'm i better for it. I'm better for understanding and seeing um, all the people with these disabilities out there. And yeah. I, like, I, I think it's made me a better person, this experience, for sure. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Wonderful. I think we'll leave it there. Yes. <laughs> well, thank you so much. Absolute pleasure. Absolute pleasure. 
Thank you for listening to the Long COVID Hope podcast today. We sincerely hope you've enjoyed listening and got something out of it. Please note we are not medical professionals and this does not constitute medical advice. Always speak to your doctor or medical practitioner before starting any new treatment, supplements or beginning a new exercise routine. You can learn about me, Sarah, the long haul yogi, via my link tree, which is linktree.com forward slash long haul yogi. I'm on Instagram and Twitter at the same long haul yogi handle. I offer weekly yoga for long COVID sessions most Thursdays, which are online via Zoom and are completely open access and donation based. I also have an on-demand yoga series, which you can purchase and tune into at your own time. I'm on YouTube, I'm on Insight Timer, and I do some private classes as well. All of the Yoga for Long COVID series is incredibly gentle and focused on listening to your body and going at your own pace. Again, all of this good stuff can be found at linktree.com forward slash longhauljogi. If you'd like to make a donation in support of this podcast, you can find the link to buy me a chai on Linktree as well. Thank you in advance for any donations. They're gratefully received and really do help me to build on and improve this podcast. Lastly, I wanted to say to you, wherever you are in your long COVID or chronic health journey, know that things can improve. Keep the hope alive. Speak to you next time.